On the north side of Chicago It's the coolest bar in town And if you go up there You better just beware You're gonna find a bunch of clowns It's a mad, mad, crazy bar The whole damn place is just so bizarre Full of all the vice and sin where do we even begin? Tip your bartenders. Hi, Genius. Hi, Pub Crawl Liz. This is Pub Crawl Liz. This is Jerry at Genius. Welcome to another episode of As the Ale House Turns. Right. Welcome to all those listeners. And by the way, what's our who's our vocalist? What's his name? I, I, I don't know. We got to ask Steve Marquette. Well, we have to get. He's here too. Tonight. She. I think she. Was it she? Yeah. Oh. You don't know ladies the way I thought you knew ladies. Hey, I know pussy, but... Oh, uh, God. Okay. Um, we're here with Jordan, our stellar executive producer. Our absolutely crucial executive producer. No doubt about it. And Rock and Roll Ruth, as always. Yes. Our lovely assistant producer. Uh-huh. Um, I think we should start out with the fact that this is the first show that we're recording after the fact that all of the other shows have gone live. So people have had the chance to listen to these already. Yeah, but some people don't listen to them. And so they're... A, a bunch of a lot of people don't listen to them. Yeah. So it's not So they whatever. don't know what's happening. They don't whatever. know what's happening. The, the, you know, it's kind of like the Ale House. you got to come to be in the know. you got to listen to be in the know. Okay. S- standard. Status yeah. quo. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to make some observations after having had the first few episodes go live, because I did take a minute to listen to him to make sure, A, we don't sound like total idiots, I think B, we sa- I think we sound great. It's not so bad. I was, I was impressed. Yeah, I was impressed by, I was shocked by your performances. I can't think I was of, a little bit nervous. I can't think of any radio personalities that are even close to us, actually. Hmm. I don't really listen to the radio, so that's a problem. I, I, I used I have to. No, I have no point of comparison. But I will say, I did listen to him just to get an idea of what, what the hell was going on, because I just really wasn't sure, and to see if we were doing things okay, and to make sure we weren't, you know, I don't know, repeating ourselves or whatnot. And we, we were a little repetitive and, here and, so and there, but so we, don't, we don't know, we still don't know what Big we're doing. Deal. Big but deal. But let me, tell me, let me give you some observations I have made after having released the first handful of episodes. The first one is... Our intro song is really good. Oh, it's great. And, and you know, kudos to uh, Pub Crawl Liz. Now, by the way, the f- opening lyrics are mine. What the fuck are you talking about? The, in the, uh, no, on the north side of Chicago. No, they're not. Bullshit. See, I... Now I, you're trying to take credit for my I'm work? To, I'm trying to get a little, you know... You know, Jack, by the way, Paul Anker wrote the, um, the song for the intro song for The Tonight Show. And it was real good. I guess it was real good. I can't even remember what it was. But so good. Paul Anka said that the only way Johnny Carson would do it if he got half the credit, so he'd get the royalties. So he split the royalties with Johnny oh my Carson. God. Yeah. So that's show business. So I want credit okay, for the. Uh, I want the credit for the opening line. No, you don't get it. Oh, two. I'm taking it. Observation number two. Uh, we really do talk about absolutely nothing. But I. We talked about the queen's vagina. I mean, this is right. not nothing. Why do you gotta, a, Why do you have to highlight that moment? Well, because you say we talk about nothing. We talked about the the, the duchess with a dick. <sighs> we talked about lots. Of, we talk about all kinds of important stuff. 
Okay, my third observation is that Bruce, you... The genius. Really do, think, really do think you are a genius. But is there any doubt? Every episode. You know what? I'm, I'm a genius. Look around. Look around. Just look around. Okay. It's like, you know, you've never got a chance to meet Leonardo da Vinci and you got a chance to meet me. Just look around. Bruce is really jazzed up tonight, and by you guys. The, and by the way, my third, uh, the proof of my third book arrived, and there's only one little thing that, that, that makes me, you know... But I'm, it's going to be, I'm going to immediately announce Amazon, Fire Away. It, observation number. Best book, by the way. It's observation. my best book. It's called um, we'll get to your Cali- plug. California we'll get to Jailbreak. Your plug. Well, it's, it's topical. It just came in. Observation number four is that, for the record, I really am not a man hater. You keep bringing this up. I don't understand why. And, I, and what, what did Lenny Bruce say? Oh, I never met a dyke I didn't like. Why do you always have to go back there? All right, All right so I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just, for the record. Observation so number you're five. So you, you you're saying you don't have penis on me? No. Okay. Number five. Observation yeah. number five. Yeah. Um, I feel like you have a very schizophrenic approach to your relationship with me. How so? One minute you're like, oh, she's my go-to girl. I can't do anything without her. I need her for my book. And the next minute is, if Pub Crawl Liz doesn't fuck up. Well, because you know what? I tried. I hold you to a high standard. You're all over the and place. I, I, I want, you know. You're I, all over the place. I don't I'm want you saying. to be I'd an like, underachiever. I'd like a little bit more of a, you want, you want affection. appreciation. You want yes. affection. Mm-hmm. Well, let's not get crazy. You're, you're not going to have sex with me. Just get that Gross. right through your head. Okay. Uh, and the last observation I will make is that we really love and need Jordan. <laughs> yes. Okay. I think we can. Those are my. Bits. I think we can stipulate that. Those are my bits and pieces. I know how to carry the blocks up from the basement. That's what I know. Um, the other little bits and pieces I will say is that uh, we already have received some comments oh. and feedback. Really? Yeah. Um, and I'm surprised to hear that people don't hate us. Oh, they'll come. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure they will. Um, but we have comments like, good first episode. Uh, Mark B. from Ohio says, great first show. I've been following the genius f- uh, for the past four years. I've always enjoyed the blog. Now I am looking forward to following this podcast. Keep up the good work. I will. I will. Um, we've got uh, a comment, a lovely comment from a woman, um, and it says, I'm addicted to the new As the Ale House Turns podcast. What I listened to on my daily metro commute just officially got 75% more in savory. That's from Sarah from Hinsdale. Hi, Sarah from Hinsdale. By the way, I banged a few uh, chicks from Hinsdale when I went to Downers Grove, Uppers Grove High School. Uh, Kevin from New Orleans. They were very wealthy girls. Kevin from New Orleans says... Very excited about this venture, downloading it now. Hi, Kevin. Bud says, terrific start, bring it on, and thank you for the additional insights into Tony. Um, pretty good first podcast, says Malagas. Pretty good, pretty good. I like your affectionate, wise assery with Bruce. Is this Melania Trump? Uh, you seem to, let me, can I just finish the damn comment? Pretty good first podcast. I like your affectionate wise assery with Bruce. You seem to have his number, and he doesn't seem to mind a bit. No, I'm thick skinned. I have a great sense of humor, unlike most fucking people. And uh, the last comment I have is uh, 
What a great start hearing your voices and the background chatter puts me right in the bar with you guys. My only complaint, can't get Croce's song out of my head because it's a damn good song. It's a great our, song. Our version, anyway. No, it's a great song. I, I think we, I think, <laughs> let me not say we, I think you should extend it a few more lines. It's so good. Uh, maybe I will. Maybe yeah. I will. Yeah. Um, I have all that received a few other comments via my personal email and text messages, and they're all about the same thing. They're all about the fact that people kind of understand but don't understand our relationship. Some people think it's sweet. Some people think it's weird. Some people think it's oh, it's weird, confusing. Oh no, it's weird. Um, we have a very weird relationship. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like functionally dysfunctional. Um, but they're right. They're right. You know, I feel like one minute you can be my um, endearing father figure. <laughs> Another minute, you can be my um, needy, helpless child. Or I can be the man you can never be. <sighs> That's never the situation. Uh, another moment, you're like this um, annoying brother. And most of the time, you're just the, like the dirty uncle. I think the dirty uncle probably fits me a little better. Yeah. Especially I... at my age. Um, so anyway, that's, that's that. All right. You got that off your chest. <laughs> We, amazingly, have another guest. It's amazing. Amazing, because the last guest was a real pain in the... The, the last guest went psycho on us, I'm afraid. Well, you know, let's not go there, but let's... Um, we had to do some serious... Uh, well, Jordan, not us. Jordan had to do some serious editing. And we just don't want that unnecessary work. So... So, I'm shocked that we have a guest this quickly, because we were so traumatized by that situation. I'm, well, I handle, I, you know... Just water off well, a duck's are, back. Okay, so. Um, I'm, I'm used to crazy people. Now, I, I want to know, are you going to Mirandize our next guest yeah, first? Yeah, you're going to intro him and then I'll Mirandize him. Uh, okay, so um, our next guest is a Chicago favorite. A legend. Le- he really is kind of a legend. Oh, a, broadcast, a, legend. a broadcast hero. Uh, he was started out as a journalist. when he was. How old were you when you started out as a journalist? 22. He's 22 years young. And um, that's the voice of the legendary Andy Shaw, um, at formerly at Channel 5. And then he retired from uh, ABC against my wishes and directions. And uh, But Andy, because of our last guest, we, I'm going to need to Mirandize you. So you need to know anything you say may be used against you in a court of law and certainly in a, co- a court of public opinion. I think I'm safe. I have spent a lifetime communicating and I think I know what I can say and what I can't say. So I think I'm safe. Good. Bruce is being dramatic. I think you should know that we're just going to use it on the podcast. I think you guys can make fools of yourselves with your language, but I'm unlikely to do that. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to have Andy, Me and I, too. I I've known I've known Andy really since pretty much he, he was a young journalist. And I'll tell you something about Andy. Andy was very prescient because he, you know, Chicago Journal. At one time, there were four papers, um, all making money and 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 thriving. But Andy was smart. He realized big money was going to be in TV and that newspapers were going to be eventually a thing of the past. So he was one of the first journalists to transition over to ABC. It was the first one, right? NBC first. Oh, and, oh that's right. Right. And that's... We, let's, with, let's with, actually, with Chet Kopic and that whole crowd. And, and, let's and, actually and, talk... Let's actually let Andy tell his story. Hey, shut up. I want to tell you... Uh, you know, I want to intro him. 
Um, yeah. Chad Copic and that crowd. Our friend McHugh took him down, didn't he? Okay, Andy, go ahead. Uh, Andy, I would like to hear from you personally. Uh, what do you want to hear from me? Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where were you born? Where'd you grow up? Oh, okay, real fast. Uh, born in Chicago, grew up in Evanston, went to Evanston High School, went to five colleges before I matriculated eventually. What colleges? Colgate University, the Ooh. University of Wisconsin, Roosevelt, Loyola, and UIC. I was at Wisconsin in the, in the winter of 69, arguably the most intense, uh, crazy semester in Wisconsin history. Marches and tear gas and broken windows and anti-war this and that. And that's where I met my wife for 46 years, Mary. And uh, after that, I went to Roosevelt, Loyola, finished at UIC, hit the road, Thought I was going to relocate to a warm climate, ended up back in Chicago and got a job at the City News Bureau, the legendary wire service, which over the years had Mike Royko and Charlie MacArthur and Kurt Vonnegut and many others. Went from there to the Sun-Times for a couple of years, Channel 5 for seven years, Channel 7 for 26 years, and then for the past nine years before I moved into what I call semi-retirement, I've run a watchdog organization called the Better Government Association, which is missioned to get rid of waste, fraud, corruption, and bad behavior in government. And I would say we still have a long way to go. But Andy turned the BGA around completely. I know people that uh, were on the board, and Andy completely transformed the place. It was almost irrelevant before Andy took over. He, They never dreamed of being able to raise the funds, Andy, to handle that beautifully. And um, it was he absolutely transformed it, and we're very proud of Andy. And I would say that I have been a longtime friend of Bruce's, and I know Liz from an oddball way. Because yeah, we, we also have a not-so-dirty past. Oh, Bruce. no. I, I mean, my friendship with Bruce is... Uh, Our punch is that For many, many years, uh, I have been on the outs with him, on the ins with him. <laughs> well, I'm, I've never been on the Sounds outs with you. Right. You've been on the outs with me. I mean, Bruce's blog occasionally rubs me the wrong way. I'm, I'm not thin-skinned in my professional world, but I get thin-skinned when Bruce scorches me on the blog. I, which I don't score. I've never scorched He's been incredibly kind in recent years, only because I think he likes me to c- come to the A-House occasionally and visit. Of course Which I, I would never do if I were permanently scorched. But I would say Bruce and I go back a very long way. I have the utmost admiration for him and his skills. In fact, this will be an untold story. He, he'll never take advantage of the best offer I ever made to him. I said to him, let me organize a show of your art here at the Alehouse. We will sell a million dollars worth of your art. And I honestly believe that. And here's my theory, and this is sort of... My thing and nobody else's, Bruce has rejected it because he likes the art. Bruce basically epitomizes what I call bar art. It is a, it's an art form unto itself. There's very little of it. And between the serious portraits, Einstein, Garbo, and Dietrich, and some really cool stuff that's artsy, and portraits, which are derivative, and the political art, which is derivative but really creative, I think you have a a genre here that is incredibly marketable under the right circumstances. And so Bruce values it here and doesn't want to hear me. But I thought if we brought in a Leslie Heinemann or somebody like that and he wanted to sell it, this particular group of pictures 
would would reap amazing amounts of money because here's what art's about. And Bruce knows much more about art, so correct me if I'm wrong. To me, what art is about is the the artist who does it first. I mean, sui, sui generis, as right. you point out. They're right. There are a lot of people who do similar things, and whoever does it first and does it well is the star. And so I've said it here because it's a good place to say it, and I'm now done, and I'll never suggest it again. So your friend Andy Shaw, world-renowned journalist, political reporter, very well-respected in so many fields, tells you, Bruce, you can make some money off of this art, and you say no? Yeah, I refuse. Because he doesn't care about it. He wants the art for its artistic value in the, in the alehouse. He doesn't care exactly. about a lot of money here. I, I, I was off, I saw the, one of the auction houses in 2008 when Sarah Palin went viral, my painting of Sarah Palin went viral. They wanted to auction it. I said, no. I want it right here in the bar where everybody can come in and, and praise me and tell me how wonderful I am. That's what, I, that's what I wanted. But people could do that. Uh, let me tell you, Sarah Palin, that was perhaps, that's arguably your best. Blagojevich was well, incredible. Well, no, Sarah it's Palin, the most famous. Sarah most Palin famous. probably could have fetched, well, I, I don't want to get too crazy, maybe in the right art market could have fetched a million dollars. In well, the right hands, under the right circumstances. It, uh, Dietrich... Yeah. Dietrich Einstein and Garbo. Well, that's is, a museum. That's piece. my all-time favorite. That's the one. That's the one I was hoping, if I'm nice enough to Bruce, that he'd eventually give me. But I'll never get it. Well, no, you'd have to I promise to donate it to the Art Institute. About, we when should you, talk about what which paintings well, we want when he dies. Well, I'm not going to. He gave me. Uh, listen, you know what he gave us for a house in Michigan? We have four incredible pieces called. It was they were dice. It was the dice game series. No, I like those. I, I, I like those. The dice well, you know why it worked because we have a place on the lakefront with views of all kinds of beautiful, colorful things: blue water, green woods, brown soil, and those those dice paintings are yellow backgrounds with a little red. Uh, trust nice. me. We don't have a lot of art in our house because the art's outside. It's, it's a very windows. modern house. Yeah, but those pa- those those fit perfectly. That's all. Those are also and, safe paintings. And also, my wife very safe. My yeah. wife wanted those. Ninety percent of Bruce's work, my uh-huh. wife wouldn't have wanted oh, only because me. They're Andy. She's a good Catholic girl from Northern Wisconsin who just didn't like a lot of the sex art. Well, she's probably not going to like this uh, podcast either. But she'll like the podcast because it's friendly. Okay, yeah, it's friendly, but guess what? Andy was going to listen to one of our podcasts on the way up to Michigan, and he was in the car, and 10 minutes in, his wife said, absolutely not, turn it off. I just think that it was a long car ride. She was tired. <laughs> well, see, how long have you been married? i got to protect Mary, 46 years. Yeah, well, that's how you stay married, 46 years. There you go. I mean, she he's, was tired. he's not wrong. He's not wrong to, to make his wife happy. Well, no, Happy wife, You know happy the old life. saying, happy wife, happy life. Happy life. I've never had a happy wife. <laughs> but you've had a fairly happy life. I've had one. I don't think the wives have. <laughs> Except oh they were my. never bored. Oh, my. And here I am, age 70, and happier and healthier than I've ever been. And a large part of it is the fact that I just have a world-class wife and oh, great kids. I, I, I've, I was just talking to Rock and Roll Ruth about if you're... you're you are not Andy Shaw without Mary Shaw. There's no question about that. I and mean, he's got three of the greatest kids you've ever seen. And that is not because of Andy. That is. 
Why do you say Andy that? Andy was there. Because, he, well, he's a sperm donor. Come but on. He was a sperm donor. So, he, yeah, he's important to the whole enterprise. No, but, I mean, come on. Guys can't turn out those kind of daughters. I disagree. I have a great dad. <clears throat> and I think that you can certainly feel the care and love and support of a parent. Well, no, it's important. But these are, these are extraordinary girls. and They have an extraordinary dad. He worked. And mom. He worked. He's off doing oh stuff. Oh, God. Come on. I would say that, yes, Mary did most of the heavy lifting, but I did all I could, as much as I could, because I really think that, and you're a dad, Bruce, um, and if you're going to have them, spend the time to raise them. Otherwise, oh my don't God. bother. Oh, nobody ever spent more time with their kid than me. I was, cause that's, I, I was willing to sacrifice work and... Uh, just be a stay-at-home dad. And that's the reason I don't have children. And I think you did one of the more incredible things I remember. You actually, you did a deep genealogical survey, and you determined that Gracie actually had Indian lineage, <laughs> which should entitle She's her... A full-blooded Shoshone there Indian. There you go. Which should entitle her to affirmative action... <laughs> Free tuition at McAllister. And she never, ever took advantage of her mineral rights. Well, the worst part is she didn't get the casino she was entitled to I mean. yeah. that we could have basically made millions off of. Not we, but, but we, weren't, you, we weren't greedy. But he doesn't care about the money, remember? He only needs enough to have fun. Yeah. yeah. Got to go out to dinner every now and then, that's all. No, I, 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 produce, I produce a phenomenal child, too. Absolutely you did. You smart did. as a whip and a great dog trainer. I'm gonna say one of the best just, dog lovers I know. Just got a, just got her. Yeah, but she, she not, doesn't know how to discipline dogs. Um, but she just got her MBA and she's going into the corporate world. I never dreamed I'd produce a child that would go become corporate. But and know. my only my only quarrel with Gracie is she treats her dogs better than she treats her dad. Uh, you know what? Maybe because they behave better. <laughs> um, I don't think they behave she better. She can train than me. them. She can train them better. They win no, more. she does they a very poor more. job of training. They, win more. they win more shows. If she yeah, does a poor job training dogs, then that should tell you something about you. Um, yeah, well, I, 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 <laughs> okay. I, I'll okay. accept that. Okay. So, wait, seriously. Um, Andy, I also have a past with Andy that I don't know that you know about. Um, well, I'm dying to hear about it. I'll let Andy tell it. I've known Andy for a long time. So, interestingly enough, Liz comes from a family, one of the more incredible immigrant family stories that I can recall. Um, I, Mexico, Liz? Yeah, my, my parents were from Mexico City. And, and so where were, where were the other Garibays from? The, so, Mar- the, the, so my, my siblings, my, my, uh, I have three siblings, and um, my sister Maria... Uh, which is the next oldest and I, six years older, she uh, was, used to babysit for Andy's kids. Hmm. Well, the family, the thing about well, the family... that's right. You were old town. You were old town. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so they had three kids, all of whom became extraordinarily successful because their parents were loving and they were not educated. I think he was a... He worked in a film... He Didn't he work at the Clark Street yeah. Theater as a projectionist? And she did childcare. But the kids were remarkable. They all did well in school and they all went on to really fine lives. And I think they helped take care of our kids. Yeah, but, and then after, after my sister 
stopped babysitting got older, my cousins actually stepped in, my mom's brother's kids. So there's like the next iteration of it all. So I guess the point that Mar- Mary, my wife and I always marveled at, at the success of their kids and we just looked at that and we said, you know, if you have a loving hard-working, well-meaning family. They don't have to be educated. They don't have to speak good English, which they didn't. They spoke mostly Spanish. But the kids got good educations. They're all, they all have good jobs. They, mom took care of our kids, but mostly took care of a nephew of ours full-time. And, and they just basically told me, I think the kind of maudlin message that I take out of it is that the American dream is a real thing. And as much as it's been defiled and uh, battered around in current times for a lot of political reasons, there's just, there's no place on earth where people can come from places far away, not speaking the language, not having an education, and end up with extraordinarily successful and happy lives because there's just... There's just some magical aspects. And I know you, Bruce, with your Facebook messages are about as as unhappy and negative as one could be about the the happenstance of this current America. But I think and I couldn't agree I totally agree with you that we are in a this country's in its worst possible place in most ways. But it still remains the beacon for people all over the world. And you know what? Everybody wants to come here. This is this is where people wanna come. And it's partly because we create a climate where you can succeed if you work hard and follow the rules. I think of the Lunas, which they were your cousins, yeah. mm-hmm. and they were. They, I watched the success of that family under under duress and tough odds, and I thought, you know, this is why people come here. Well, I, I mean, I'm not going to argue that, uh, especially if you take your sanctuary cities like Chicago. Yeah. It, I mean, we're welcoming. I mean, people uh, are welcome here, and the cops don't. And part of the one of the good things about the sanctuary city by having a sanctuary city, cops can't shake down illegal immigrants. Then, cops used to shake them down because, oh, hey, you know, we'll turn you in, and and you're going to get deported. Now you can't do that in Chicago. I mean, in, in other sanctuary cities. But, boy, I'll tell you what, what's going on in this country, I mean, just th- this ripping kids away from their parents, you know, and it's, and, and by the way, strictly for political, it's a political uh, poker game, you know, I, I, I'll give you the kids back if you will build this stupid wall. I mean, this is absolutely, absolutely disgusting. Well, and, no, you're totally, look, that is indefensible, and, and the things you've said about American history, I've said the same thing. We came back from Italy a few weeks ago, and people say, well, how is Italy? And we were in Spain and Portugal a year ago. How are Spain and Portugal? Well, you know, what makes those countries great, well, the food's great, the wine's great, but what I love is the history. I went, we traveled to a little town in Portugal, and I Google it, And what do I find out? This little town was settled by Julius Caesar (laughs) in like 80 B.C. And I'm thinking, WTF, how am I? I'm here. And there's a church there that's a thousand years old. And there's and so to me, the history of you, that's what makes travel fun, the history. Now, you make the right point. I've made it many times. 
the real tragedy of America and the fact that we don't celebrate our history is because what's it a history of? It's a history of slavery and genocide, genocide of the, of the Indians. Indians and, you know, Imperialist uh, wars and Tom and, and Jim Crow and you know persecution of gays and no votes internment I mean, of Japanese oh my God. citizens. So we don't have a history to celebrate, which is very true. Except for you know Boston, Philadelphia, we have a few places that are still cool: Savannah, Charleston, Key West, New Orleans. I don't think it has to be that depressing, you guys. Well, I think the history is depressing. I, I think, Liz. I, think I, the, I think there are some, this, some this, small victories you know, in our I, history. Every time I hear USA. USA. Okay, USA. that's annoying in that, in that regard because no, it usually comes Liz, from a bad Liz, place. Liz, you're 100 percent right. So, so here's here's the rest of the story. The history is troubling in many ways, but I think there's something in the American spirit that I think is really, really impressive, and that is I think we have this indomitable will as a society and as a as a culture to eventually get it right. Remember what Obama said? He borrowed this line from King, which was really, really important. He said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. And what he meant by that was that sooner or later, we would try to get it right. And if you think of American history, from the, from the Revolutionary War to the Civil War, to the end of child labor and sweatshops, to women's suffrage, to civil rights, to gay rights, we have tried. We eventually get all this stuff right. We get on the right side of it eventually, and and we're the only country that does that. And I think that that no, a I, I don't think we're the only country that does. Wait that. a minute. Well, some countries are inherently able to get there from immediately because they're homogenous and they don't have the struggles we have. And all I'm saying is, I think that's the wonderful aspect of America and the fact that people can make it. They can make it on their merits to some extent is why everybody wants to come here. And now I'm off my patriotic flag. Bruce, thank you so much for not stomping on me for this because well, you're probably sitting there. You're probably Your stomach is probably rolling as I, as I uh, celebrate hey. aspects of America. But uh, I think you might agree that some aspects, some of what I've described could be true. Well, Hang I, on a second. I remain, I, I stay here. Pause. <laughs> I agree with a lot of what Andy just said. Yeah, but, of course you would, little brown nose but, girl. But, 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 you can't say that other countries around the world haven't had their horrific moments in history. Look at eight, 19th century England. Well, look at, I mean, 20, look at, look at 21st look at, century England. I'm just saying, like, you, you, can, you can pick these windows throughout history across, you know, space and time... And there's going to be people always oppressing other people. That's just kind of like this weird part of human nature. That's just the way it is. And us, for an, uh, our country, our history is so pitifully short that it's easy for us to relate to all the bad stuff that happens because it's almost like it just happened. So I don't, I mean, I'm very proud to, to, to be in this country for many reasons and to, proud to be American. And, and you just have to... That's, I mean, that's kind of why I chose to be a historian, so you can, like, dissect a lot of this stuff and learn from it. And that's my issue with our country right now, is that all of that shit that was happening in the, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th century, fine. This is kind of the way it was. But my problem now is that it's freaking 2018, and we're doing the same shit we did back in the 1700s. Like, it's normal. Well, it's, we're actually doing uh, worse things with the income. I mean, today's Juneteenth. 
I mean, you. And we got kids in cages. And we're supposed to be cel- this today is official day of what, to celebrate where, the Emancipation where I w- Proclamation. Where I would agree with where I would agree with Andy is that the founding fathers, in fact, I don't know if half of them are slave owners, but still, James Madison, probably our only really great original thinker, understood one thing that Karl Marx did not understand: that man is inherently corrupt, and that power corrupts. So therefore, we have the three. Now, in this case, we had, uh, the Congress is no longer right now functional as far as a, a balance of power. It can be, and it could be, and maybe if the asshole uh, voters actually go out and vote this time, uh, maybe that they could become relevant again. But you have the courts. You have, and and Madison was right. Uh, power corrupts, and we need the uh, checks and balances. That's it's a that's a beautiful, beautiful document. I also think that it might, mu- it might save us. I also believe, truly believe, that as much as human beings can be inherently bad, I also believe they can be inherently good. So, you know, I feel like. There, you know, two two sides of the coin, and there's a balance, and sometimes those scales are just not. Can I tell? Can I tell you a quick story? Of course. So so last week, Woodward and Bernstein came to Chicago to participate in a uh, in a panel discussion, and they basically were talking about the U.S. presidency. And Woodward's probably written fifteen books, and Bernstein's written several books. And Woodward's not working on a book on Trump. He's done every president since. I want to say Nixon, and he had a fascinating thing to say. They both had the same thing to say, and Bernstein is a liberal, and Woodward's more conservative. Sort of reactionary right wing. Okay, that's from Wheaton, Illinois. That's Bruce. I would say he's a conservative, but that's fine. Anyway, what, but they but they both said the same thing. They both said, "Hold off on your judgments of the long-term effects of what's going on now because history changes things. And I'm not talking about what's going on now with the separation of kids from their parents. There's no need for history to weigh in on that. You know that's bad. But Woodward told this great story about how, remember when uh, Ford pardoned Nixon? I certainly do. Right. And so this is in Watergate times. And Woodward and Bernstein owned the Watergate story and got enormous fame and riches from that story, deservedly. And Woodward says, you know, so I'm sleeping on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning, and I get a call, and Bernstein's on the phone, and I just wake up, and Bernstein, who's always on top of things, says to me, did you just hear that motherfucker pardon the motherfucker? (laughs) What he meant was Ford had just pardoned Nixon. And so their first perception of this was this was the ultimate act of corruption in the Watergate scandal. This was the this was the pay to play. So Ford, Nixon agrees to resign, Ford becomes president, he pardons Nixon. It's the last act of corruption in Watergate. And that was the conventional story for many for many years. And Woodward said, in doing a book later on, he reached out to Gerald Ford, who was in New York for some something. This is like 10, 15 years ago. And he says to Ford, I'm doing a book, and I'd like to talk to you about your pardon. And Ford says, okay. Woodward thought that Ford would push him off because he'd never talked about it. And he said, come on down to New York, and we'll talk. And we, they talked. And Woodward said, so tell me. Th- Here's the story that Ford told. He said, 
a week before I pardon, a week before I pardon Nixon, either Haldeman or or Ehrlichman, somebody came to me and said, if you pardon, if you agree to pardon Nixon, he'll resign. And Ford said he thought to himself, well, I don't have to agree to that because he has to resign anyway. He's basically toast. You know what I mean? So why would I agree? So I said no. So he resigned. Ford became president, which he was going to become anyway. And he said, in the first six months of his presidency, there was nothing else that mattered to people except for what would happen to Nixon. Would he be indicted? Would he be tried? Would he go to jail? And Ford said, that basically occupied every ounce of my early presidency. And I said to myself, you know, I'd like to have a presidency that involves me taking care of things that matter. And as long as Nixon's out there as an issue, I will never have a presidency. And he said that the only way I can put this behind us and have my own presidency is to get Nixon off the front page. And he got Nixon off the front page by pardoning him. And then he didn't become president because he pardoned right, him. Which he argued was an act for America and what, his presidency. What bullshit. You know that deal was made before I'm he ever... I know what they say, of course. My favorite, by the but way... They believe, but see, Bruce, let me, before you... What, what, what Woodward said was he came away from that believing that the pardon of Nixon wasn't the last acts of corruption of Watergate. It was part of Ford's attempt to have a presidency. It cost him the election against Jimmy Carter. My point is just true or false, believe it or not. His point is what seems to be reality today could turn out to be 180 degrees difference in five years, and that's why early rushes to judgment are dangerous. Well, I, I agree with that because I think there will be a horrible reaction at some point. Now, you've got the 35% of the low-life, knuckle-dragging scum suckers that will uh, support uh, Trump no matter what. But there, there's, there's more people th- that in the country than them. And there will be a reaction. I mean, the economy, something's going to snap. Something at some point that that's going to, um, people are going to turn on him with a vengeance. I mean, maybe when Putin shows the piss tapes of the hookers, uh, whatever, something's going to happen. No, and the country is resilient, and we've we've snapped snapped back from other things. So I agree. I don't I don't think this is the end of the world. I think this is partly just a huge temper tantrum for having a black president for eight years that the racists in the I mean, they just couldn't handle it. It just overwhelmed them, and they just want to get even whatever way they can. My fa- By the way, my favorite Bernstein story was after he became famous, he called some friend up and said, you'll never guess who's sleeping naked to me in bed right now. And the friend said, who? Elizabeth Taylor. She must have been 30 years older than him. I, I love that story, though. If I was interviewing, I'd ask him about that. Andy, <clears throat> did you see the post? Oh, my God, of course. Did you like it? Well, I not only saw it, but, you know, um, we do blogs, too, at the Better Government Association. Obviously not as sophisticated and technically adept and uh, informative. Well, not as creative and beautifully and written. Certainly, no. we'll never compete with the Alehouse uh, blogs, but we do them. And I did an interview with Daniel Ellsberg, famous as the whistleblower of the Pentagon Papers, uh, at our investigative awards event a couple months ago. And... His stories are fantastic, but you know it's 
it's just fun to revisit history. And it, oh, it certainly is. Al's, Did you think that the that the film portrayed it well? The so, little incident. So Ellsberg's take on the film was that his role in the film was well represented. He told a couple amazing stories that you guys may not have heard. I'm not sure if you're aware. So while Ellsberg was copying all of the documents from the defense, he was working for a defense contractor under McNamara, the Secretary of Defense at the time. He was an intelligence operative for a contractor for the government. And, and that's when he became so disaffected with the Vietnam War because he realized from the papers, from a study that had been commissioned by the Defense Department, he realized that everybody in power acknowledged that it was an unwinnable war. It was a wasted war. And it was a foolish errand that was costing tens of thousands of American lives. And so he felt he had an obligation to make that public. And so he's he's got to copy the Pentagon Papers. This is 1972, remember. This is before any of the technology that enables us to do things quickly. And so he's Xeroxing or faxing these things at the office of a woman who has the equipment. He has at the time an 11 and 13 year old kid. The 11 year old kid's job was to cut the tops of the pages <laughs> off where it said top secret. The 11 year old kid, the 13 year old was doing the collating and the stapling. And here's what happened the cops raided them twice because. There was an alarm in the place that someone set off. So twice the Washington police came to see what was going on. And, of course, they had no, int- they had no knowledge of what was. So meanwhile, the guy is basically under my, under, he's, he's, ter- he's basically finishing off an entire administration. And the cops are wondering why the alarm goes off. Anyway, so that didn't make it into the movie. Uh, Ellsberg said that Spielberg filmed the sequence but dropped it because it was too complicated with kids. But Ellsberg created, he, 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 let, he laid the documents on 18 different publications. And here's the other story about Ellsberg that's most interesting. At the same time, Ellsberg was also monitoring intelligence work on nuclear power and nuclear development and all of the intelligence stuff involving Khrushchev and Kennedy and Bay of Pigs and all that stuff. And he was compiling all this stuff about um, the risk of nuclear war and what happened at Bay of Pigs and how much at risk we were and how close we were. And he wanted to, he wanted to basically leak all of that material, too, to the press. And so he had the same number of documents about nuclear fiascos and nuclear problems as he had on the Pentagon Papers. But he was afraid to do the, both simultaneously. So the Pentagon Papers was first. And he had all these documents on nuclear secrets from intelligence. And he gave them to his brother, and he said, can you take care of them until the shit storm blows over with the Pentagon Papers? And his brother came up with an idea. He took all the documents, and he put them in a big kind of a metal locker, and he buried them in a garbage dump. In a garbage dump? Buried them in a garbage dump and put a two or three hundred pound fridge on top of the space so that they could find it. What happened? In the next six months, there was a hurricane. Blew through there and scattered everything in the garbage dump, including the two or three hundred pound fridge that was on top of the nuclear docks. 
And so they never recovered the nuclear docks. And so it took Ellsberg 40 years until like two or three years ago to basically reconstruct in his own mind all of the findings of those per- that period. Wow. And it turned into a book that he released a couple years ago about the nuclear threat. And what, it was the same as the Pentagon. It was, this, what was it? it was all the history and how dangerous Khrushchev was and how dangerous Kennedy. It was all the stuff you like. You love the Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, oh, incompetent totally. stuff. It's one of your favorite yeah, things. Yeah, the Bay of Pigs. What a, what a oh. wonderful, brilliant But this was an amazing story. Can you imagine losing... The, well, I can't oh imagine the hiding my I, stuff in a garbage dump. Yeah. Well, look, that I, seems like such a, such a stupid... It's, it's on the podcast I sent you guys. You should hear yeah, the story. Yeah, so, Andy, tell everybody where uh, they can find this podcast. Oh, okay, so you, if you go to bettergov.org, which is the BGA website, Better Government Associate website, and then the, the tabs on the, uh, on the top of the page, one of the tabs is podcasts. You click it, and then you go down... We have a lot of podcasts, and this one is a special one with Ellsberg. It's about a 40-minute interview. As I said, not anywhere near as technically or professionally or... Well, you don't con- have Jordan. Yeah, you don't have our, you don't have our executive producer. Exactly. And I mean, you're not getting them either. But, it was, but, it's a, but if you want to hear a piece of history, and you, and you guys love this stuff, I mean, you guys yeah. like, this was fascinating. And... You know what? What I'll do is I will um, in the in the podcast description for this I'll link it. I'll oh, that'd be great. Uh, something else Woodward said that was fascinating. I know you're not a Woodward fan, but Woodward's doing a Trump book. Just the way the man talks. I know. nobody from Wheaton talks like that. I don't know what the hell he. So learned. so Woodward's working in a Trump book, and he said that at first Trump book he wanted to interview this general about Trump and military policy in Iran and stuff, and this general kept. You know, avoiding him. He wouldn't answer emails or phone calls so or, or anything. So Bob said, so he said, what's the best time to call a general? And, of course, in the audience of 500 people, somebody says, after cocktail hour. And Bob says, of course. So it's 8 p.m., and I call the general. I say, General Bob Woodward from the Post. And the general says, what, you're still doing this shit? And Bob says, yeah, I'm working on a book on Trump. He says, I know I've been avoiding you. And Bob says, hey, I'm four minutes from your house. Can I stop by? And the general's probably had two or three cocktails. Says, sure, stop by. So Bob goes over there. He says, we didn't finish talking till sunup the next day. Bob's point was that one of the things missing from modern journalism, which is pressured to do things fast and basically insufficiently, is people don't work stories. He said, in the old days when I was working on my books, I'd go, I'd go visit people. You've got to go talk to people. If they won't talk to you, go to them. And he said, the general gave me some great stuff. And so my lesson for modern journalists is get out there. and An email is not enough. A phone call is maybe not enough. Go, go see them. And so I'm only saying that because as a lifelong journalist... Maybe that's a lesson to all the kids today that don't do anything but read the newspaper and tweet and do Facebook and never think about what real reporting is about. Real reporting is doing everything under the sun to get people to talk to you. Well, I think, I think that Trump has brought that. I think we're going we're gonna to produce some Hall of Fame uh, reporters thanks to uh, Donald Trump. And I was going to say, Andy, you're, I mean, you're from that school. 
you know, of reporting. So I think from all of this, I think Andy not so secretly misses it. I know he does. Oh, I, don't, I know he does. I, I don't. I make no bones. He made about a horrible it. career decision. I and I and I oh, never. I've brother, never been able to. Forgive, I've he never ta- been he able said, to forgive him. He tells him. a story every week, Andy. Yeah, but I've never been able to forgive him for it because I basically think he did it just to hurt me, to spite you. Yeah, I'm well, sure he's. I'm sure Andy has made career moves just to spite you. Because I was living off his glory, and all of a sudden. He withdrew it from me. I, I, I forgive you your narcissism, and that's perfectly appropriate. <laughs> I will tell you that I left ABC7 under duress from my dear wife, who said, you're approaching 60, you are working your butt off, it's stressful, it's difficult, I don't want you to just drop dead of a heart attack because of the pressure. And I said, okay. And you know what I said? I said, Andy, look at what's going on here. We have Barack Obama. You know him. You're wired into Barack Obama. He's going to be president. And guess what? We've got Blagojevich. Blagojevich is going to get nailed. And you're right there. You know this. This is you. You own this shit. And not only that, there is not one competent political reporter in the whole goddamn city of Chicago. You're it. And what does Andy do to me? (laughs) To you. He retires. Well, you know. How dare you? No, I, 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 like I, that, can't for, I can't forgive him. I think there's a certain there's a certain self satisfaction in leaving things on your own terms. Yes, over these ten years, I have missed a lot of broadcasting opportunities. I missed the broadcasting part, but I didn't leave because of the time on the air when I talked to you. I left because of the 10, 12, 14 hours before that that it took to get your broadcasts ready for 4, 5, 6, 10, and maybe 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. That takes a toll. I think I may have mentioned this in this broadcast. If I didn't, I don't mean to be repetitive. I did 12,000 stories on on 5 and 7 over 33 years. 12,000 news stories. That's not to brag, that is simply to say, that's an explanation for how you get tired. And I know that you're indefatigable and nothing tires you <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, if I get my naps, I am. Anthony right. Bourdain called him a workaholic. No, <laughs> yeah, he, so so well, all I'm saying is that, you know, it's, I was wearing down and, you know, could I have stayed and would I have loved, you know, but I also left for another reason, and you'll appreciate this as a, as a, as a tech-phobic guy, and I'm a little better but not much better. I also saw where the business was going. It was going to a place where they wanted you to blog and videotape stuff. Yeah, and, that's all bullshit. And then it was going to be twit, Twitter and Facebook. It, in addition to your news, forget right. it. You were going to be doing the same stuff that was involved in your broadcast, but then you had to do meet all. The, you had to satisfy all these other platforms. And you know what I saw coming that I really left because of? I left because I visualized us having to then shoot our own stories. Shoot them, edit them, produce them on multiple platforms. When the fuck are you ever going to do your reporting and storytelling? Well, I had no idea that they right. were... Right. Oh. So my point is, you know, the news business should have people who dig deep, get real, get as close as they can. Woodward and Bernstein put this really well. The goal is to appro- to get as close as possible to truth. Nobody thinks you get truth, but get close to it. At least do enough work to figure out what truth might look like. You can't do that if you're shooting, editing, 
doing Facebook, Twitter, and all this, and blogs and podcasts. I mean, so the business is basically the my old business. One of the reasons that Trump is able to trample the news business is that the news business has invited itself to be trampled by its incompetence and by its by its simplicity and its. You know, I'm not saying that the good broadcasters don't do good work, but if you think about what happened in news, now it's it's all about it's about talk. Most of news now is people talking on cable, right? I mean, MSNBC, CNN, Fox, and it's and they're just basically so they do their story quickly and then they go on a broadcast and talk about it. In the old days, you spent most of your time gathering facts and thinking about what you learned and figuring out what approximated truth. I think nowadays, I don't even know who pays attention to what truth is. Well, in your nobody, and during your right. career, during your career, Andy, who is your all-time? And, and let's let's restrict this to Chicago. Who's your all-time favorite journalist? Who do well, you think was the best? Well, it's probably. We probably share the same fondness for Royko. I mean, well, I you're talking do, about yeah. if now in terms of, I mean, movie. I mean, nobody matches Ebert, who is like, he well, was the master of his. Well, craft. I think I think that Roger would have agreed about Royko. I think that no, but I think it. some of the great columnists. I think Roger Simon was just a brilliant writer, um, but among. And Royko is the best columnist. If you're talking about the best overall journalist, well, oh my all right, God. Well, all right. What about TV? What about TV news person? Oh, man. So it's so many categories. If you anchor the news, you're not reporting the news, but you're communicating no, you're sure, it. you're sure as hell not. Oh, man. So I loved my colleagues Dick Kay and Mike Flannery. I thought they did really important political work. Um... Gosh, I don't know who my favorite TV news... Ca- news. I mean, you're not talking anchors because they're just reading. Right. Well, I mean, but I mean, just personnel... I mean, the whole thing. I mean, oh. the, the people that really impressed you. And- I, you know, you told me... Before we broadcast, and you may repeat this nasty comment, but I will tell you that my favorite broadcaster in terms of the most intelligent, interesting creative and also informative person on a day-to-day basis is my buddy Mark Greco. I don't think there's anybody who takes the sports genre and makes it more fun. Do you ever listen to Mark? Sure. So, look, sports well, is certainly just... certainly doesn't take it overly seriously. Right. I think in terms of clever headlines and clever comments and irreverence, Mark is the best. Um, best invest... Oh, I'm sorry. And... Very few people will agree because she's not exactly telegenic, but my all-time favorite investigative TV journalist is Pam Zekman. Oh, yeah. I think Pam... Well, you'd get some <laughs> right. I know. serious criticism here because she does a lot of yellow journalism, lots. Uh, right, and so I'll tell you, a lot of people hate her, but I just think... I don't o- hate her, but over, I mean... I over 40 years, I think Pam has done more good stories over 40 years. Now, nobody else lasts 40 years, so maybe it's just longevity. Uh, I loved my old pal Paul Hogan at Channel 5. I thought he was great and died so, so young from too many cigarettes. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Too many cigarettes and too much booze. He was a true front-page guy. Um, Phil Rogers at 5 is really good. 
Oh man! If you what? had to, I know that that the news and reporting is so so different now, and you know, I guess in a way it's been watered down and kind of soft. Like no, not in a way it is compared to what you guys used to do. But if you had to pick a journalist out there right now that you actually think does good work and that you aim to watch, who would that be? Are we talking just television? Uh, let's do print and television. Chicago? Are we talking Chicago? So, no, I think you can cast a wider net. Well, so, would, uh, yeah. there's so, you know, most of my old colleagues from ABC 7 are gone. Kathy Brock retired. Majors retired. Jerry Tam retired. Linda Yu retired. I mean, one after another. We're all getting old. We leave. So, I think... Young Actually, whippersnappers. No, no, I think the best date. So my two favorite day-to-day -day TV journalists are Phil Rogers at Channel 5, who I think continues to do the best, both investigative and day-to-day -day reporting of news, and my old buddy at Channel 7, Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley, who was at 7, is now at 9. I think those two are really, really good. Uh, radio... Uh, no one in my mind, no one will ever match my buddy Bill Cameron, oh, who's at the voice. WLS, yeah. and I don't think anybody listens to that station. I think the only station that people listen to less of the big stations <laughs> is WGN, where nobody listens anymore. Do you know that? Really? I didn't oh, know that. I mean, they were they were the biggest when I was a kid. That was yeah. they they were the. With Wally Phillips in those days, you know what? They're like 30th in ratings now. Ooh, Nobody no, listens. Um, but Bill Cameron, who does political reporting for WLS, which is also unlistened to, is fabulous. You know, Bill Cameron has this library of the most famous comments of the two mayor dailies. He has compiled every crazy... <laughs> well, so, there's some good ones, too. You know, the police are not there to create disorder. They're there to preserve disorder. Yeah. And Richie's saying, I stand on my own two shoes. <laughs> and I remember a question I asked of Richie one time. I said to Richie, his brother Billy was thinking of running for governor. So I was at an event. I said, Rich, so, Mayor, uh, what do you think of Bill's campaign? You know, it seems like he's a little nervous about being scrutinized. And Rich says, Rich yells out, this is what, he says, scrutinized? Scrutinized? You guys scrutin me every day. <laughs> <laughs> and so between, and Bill has every one of the clips from the Daily. So he's the best radio. Print, oh, print's the hardest because there's, like the Tribune has an amazing investigative team. The Sun Times has some great investigative journalists, and so do we. So I can't, I can't pick anybody. What about, what about on a national, uh, TV national scope? Uh, TV national. Let's see. So again, well, you're looking at anchors or reporters, or you're looking at. I just feel like right now it's not even like okay. You have your Sunday morning shows. You have your night. But, night, that, but that's weekly night you shows. Can, you can, you don't must do shows? a whole show on that. I, what I'd like I'm to. I'm just ask. asking his opinion. No, I'm not asking for all. I mean, it's so hard. Dissertation on it. Actually, I will tell you that. Well, your son, your son-in-law. Well, my son-in-law does a really nice job. Are, are we allowed to, to reveal who that sure. is? Sure. My son-in-law Chris Hayes does uh, All In on MSNBC at 7 p.m. Very good here. And he precedes Rachel Maddow, who does a really fine show after him. And it's followed by Lawrence O'Donnell. I will say, honestly, that they're more liberal than I am. Not that you are or you are. But it's okay. I love him dearly. He's a great husband to my oldest daughter. Um, 
I would say that if you want the best unfiltered information, that the best thing you could do is leave the TV off all week and watch on Sunday morning. Because I think Sunday morning is what gives you the best unfiltered, long-form information-based. So CBS, Sunday morning, anchored by Jane Pauley, who had an amazing resurrection. That's Gary Trudeau's wife, the artist. Um, I don't. We're, I don't even know where did this start, Liz. I'm I, getting lost. I was going to say, uh, Andy, thanks for uh, bringing the most intelligent conversation to our well, podcast. Wait, wait, yes. I have, but I have oh, to ask Andy. It sounds like it's. Is this the? No, 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 no. I got. No, I, no, I no. have to ask you. All-time favorite Chicago politician. Well, so you're asking me when you ask a, a news guy to rate it, you rate it on who was the most fun to cover. Yeah, well, it's not best in terms of good government. Well, well give me. Well, no, the, so, in Chicago we don't have a best in good government. So, so who's your all-time favorite? The best to cover by a mile was Harold. Absolutely. I mean, are you all-time me? But I think he was also the best mayor. I won't argue. We'll, we'll save that for another broadcast. Harold was Harold made my career because I got to cover council wars when he was mayor. He's also was amazingly intelligent, glib. Incredibly intelligent. Remember, I'll never forget, and uh, I, we're probably near the conclusion, but Harold... Harold assembles... So I'm, we're covering a press conference at City Hall, and Harold assembles the press, and he says, he says something, and he says, you, you don't appreciate me because you don't realize that I am sui generis. And he, and he said, I had to go look that up. And he said, and I don't think anybody in this room knows what that means. And I got to be honest. I did. I had I, to go look I it was, up. I was there at the time and I'm fairly well educated. I had no idea what it meant. But I've used it many times since. I used it on you yes, because you I think... On my artwork. I yes. think it's... No, I think just you in general. Oh. But it's about people who can't be easily... They're just no replication. They're one oh. of a kind. And for better or worse, I mean, people will say, for worse, you're one of a kind. I mean, Dillinger was one of a kind, right? Yes. There you go. My point is, one of a kind is just what it is. It's... They're irreplaceable. Harold was that... Uh, I thought Verdoliak and Burke were good second players to that. Uh, Richie Daly, totally boring. Fast Eddie and slow Eddie. Yeah. Uh, R- R- Richie, boring. Rom, relatively boring. Obama, boring when he governed, exciting when he campaigned. Um, but that's it. Locally. Who, 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 what politician was? do you think was the absolute most disgusting, worst um, oh, disgusting! That's hard. I mean, because I mean, just I tend to evil, like throw evil in there. Well, I want to say Ed Burke because Ed Burke, you may recall, Ed Burke tried yeah, to he, shut down he, he my. Per- fa- yes, I remember. He tried well. to shut down Mary's Bed and Breakfast Inn because he was mad at my stories. So for a while, I thought he was the most evil politician in Chicago. Well, he's he's right up there, but. But in many ways, I think he's actually the most intriguing of all Chicago politicians because even though he has a lot of race, he had a lot of racist history and a lot of. Oh, but the, he was he led the charge. Well, yeah, Bedrick was clever and had him lead the the racist charge against Harold. Did you want the all-time favorite Burke story? Do we have time? Sure. So Ed Burke, who is the dean of the city council, this is according to a book which he disputes, said. There was a murder on a CTA platform in like a, you may remember it, so way back in like the 70s, a homeless man named Richard Ranney, or Rainey, 
was killed on a CTA platform on the north side in a fight with two cops. And the cops are charged with murder. And the case goes before a judge named Arthur Seeslick, who is made a judge out of Ed Burke's ward. And so the trial's getting close, and Ed, and, and Ed calls Seeslick and says, Judge, just want to make sure you understand that you know you can't you have to take you have to protect these coppers you can't convict them and Seizlick said this is in a book I don't know if it's true or false Seizlick says to Burke Alderman they killed him they they killed him how can I let him off and Burke apparently says judge he was a fucking nigger I believe that now wow. wait a second I Fa- believe it fast forward this is a guy who adopted a black cocaine baby who turned out to be his golfing partner and best friend. Now, is it, what's that kid like now? Is he okay? Apparently, he came out much better than you would have because Ann and Ed raised him well. He's a hard-working kid. My point is that Ann and Ed are two of the best civic leaders in Chicago. Ann is major... Oh, God. Let, major, me, wait, let me vomit. Please. Major in a Special Olympics... They're in the middle of all kinds of causes, but at the end of the day, so so the other Burke story is, Rahm is about to run for mayor, and Ed is having a conversation with somebody and says, Ed supported Chewy. And somebody said to Ed, well, why, why aren't you supporting Rahm? And Burke appar- supposedly I'm said... I'm sure anti-Semitic. Yeah, Burke supposedly said, we already have one Jew mayor in New York, we don't need another one. Well, it sounds I like mean, good you can't make this stuff up. Well, I remember when I played golf with, uh, the first time I ever played golf with, with uh, Barack. And when we when we got done playing on the 18th hole at Jackson Park, we shook hands. I said, well, nice meeting you and all. And I said, by the way, can I ask you one question? I said, is Paint Phillips really as loathsome and vile and disgusting as he appears, and he said, he's worse. He's mean-spirited, and, you know, and at the end of the year, when, when, when the guys out there found out I'd been playing golf with Barack, they said, what did he say about Jesse? And I never thought to ask him, but I really think he might have told me. I think he might have actually told me what he thought of Jesse Well, Jackson. you know what he thought. Well, I know what he thought. Have you ever told your Jackson Park stories on a podcast? My Not God, yet. you've got to do. Not oh, yet. I played Jackson like a week ago. We'll have to go out there. And when I went out there, there were some, the starters were longtime guys, African Americans. They knew you, they hadn't seen you this year. And of course. I thought you said you already got out there. Or maybe they No, I played South Shore. So my point is that you have to devote a pod, at least a portion of a podcast oh, to I your could, South Shore. Oh, my God. I think I could write a book. Your about Jackson it. Park stories were. I told those guys a couple stories. They loved them. People just loved them. Well, Guitar Murphy, who just died, was the guy I was playing with when Bob Dooley went up tried with his car and tried to run over a, a Billy. And I was—I just happened to be walking down the 18th fairway with him, and I felt like Manaletti. I almost got run over by that red Coupe de Ville. Um, anyway, I, Pete, but so Pete, are, are Pete, we closing we're in gonna, here? We're gonna, this is going to have to be two podcasts, you guys. Oh, no, Pete Philip, Pete Philip, by the way. So he's still alive, still living in DuPage. I think he lives in one of the Dupa- not. Upper- I thought he was in Florida. No, he's well, maybe, but he's not only in Upper. He doesn't live in Upper's Grove. I can't remember where he is. 
But you know, Pete Phillips' claim to fame, and this is something for people to think about. They, I mean, they'll never. A lot of your podcast listeners probably don't even know who Pete Phillips. He was no, a, he's just Senate a low-life president. Scum. He single-handedly killed three really interesting Chicago plans. He killed an airport in Lake Calumet on the east side. He killed oh, a he killed a dome stadium west of Soldier Field that would have given us a chance to get the NCAA tournament and the Super Bowl and all this stuff. And he also killed, remember there was talk about a circulator going around the loop. It was like a trolley yeah, system. Yeah. He killed all of those to screw Rich Daly. Well, I, you know, one of the reasons he also killed the Dome Stadium was that Wurtz and Reinsdorf got some promises that if they built the new Chicago Stadium, nobody would build any structure that could compete with them for conventions. I mean, th- these these people are really evil. Horror. I mean, it, you really should have stayed in the business, Andy, because, man, these th- there's so many rotten son-of-a-bitches running around out there. Can I leave you with one thought? And I don't care if it's two podcasts or one. Is that okay? <laughs> one last thought. Go for it. So I have a, my middle daughter. So I have three daughters. One is out in New York as a lawyer, and she's also doing political consulting and stuff for ABC. Youngest daughter's moving back to Chicago to work on the Obama Library. She's going to help digitalize all the Obama papers. The middle daughter runs a chain of charter schools here in Chicago. She's a CEO of a chain of charter schools. And she said to me a month or so into her regime, she said, Dad, what is with this place? Meaning Chicago and Illinois. (laughs) And of course, she grew up in my household. I would have thought she had a sense of it, but we never talked more specific. So I said, Elizabeth, Here's what you have to keep in mind, and you alluded to this in your last comments. In Chicago and Illinois, with few exceptions, everything in the political arena is transactional, which means it's not about good or bad, it's not about ethics, it's not about ideology, it's about what the transaction will bring to the two parties. Now, sometimes it's illegal and it's money, sometimes it's just influence sometimes it's the fact that i know a bunch of people but almost all of the interactions are about things that help people get ahead and that explains to my way of thinking why chicago cook county and illinois have been so screwed up over all the years it's never about us the taxpayers it's never about good government for itself it's all about who gets ahead for what and that ladies and gentlemen, is what's called the Chicago way. Well, exactly. And remember, Reiko said our, our, the Chicago motto should be, where's mine in Latin? I don't know what the hell it was in Latin. <laughs> but yeah, that sums it up. I mean, that's how out. I feel. I'm when I hear find out, and I'm going to get, that's my next When I hear about all this corruption, I said, well, I just wish I was part of this action. I mean, well, that's, where's actually, mine? It was, actually, the, Lat- the real term is herbs in order. The real name is for Chicago is herbs in a garden, but Mike translated yeah. it for where's mine yeah that was okay that was, i think on that on that hey uh, uh andy next time when you come can you t- bring some juicy sh- stories <laughs> uh next time when i come i'll i'll keep it short no Those fuck so- that we don't know i mean no just keep it good that's no, all well, I, I appreciate I wonder, a lot of that insider intel man i mean when he's called to testify and we you know we did mirandize him 
It's true. Just it's remember true. that. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Yes. I uh, I always enjoy um, running into you at the bar. It's always a treat. And I will say, you know, I know you and Bruce have had your ups and downs, but I, I no, he he, he has most, downs. Most, mostly ups. Yeah. I know, I know, but what I'm t- He's sensitive. Easy. It's mostly uppers growth. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say is that every time he knows our history, and uh, every time he, he finds out you're going to come into the bar, he actually does send me a message. Say, hey, Andy's coming. Andy's coming. So he, the, the feeling is mutual. I love Bruce, and Bruce loves me. And Liz, you're one of the all-time greats, and I've got to come on one of your beer tours. Yeah, they're, they're all right. Um, my, my, my final takeaway is that, Andy, you wanted Bruce to do an art show, and he didn't. Bruce, you wanted Andy to stay in the biz with Barack, and neither of you did it, so now you're even. Okay? No, we're not even. You're even. No, we're not. Um, There's no even on Bruce's scale. <laughs> yeah, of course. He's no. a vigilante. Yeah, I have a Christ complex. All right. Well, whew, that was that was a good one. We're done? That was, we talked for a long time. I know. Well, have we signed off? Will we say no, goodbye? Not yet. We're about to say goodbye. Oh, all right. You, Bruce, I would like to thank Rock and Roll Ruth. Yes. For being a great executive you, or assistant Roll producer, Roof. thank yeah. Andy again for being a great guest. Thanks. Do we have to edit anything out, Andy? I don't think I said anything that would no. get me okay, in trouble. Okay, great. No, we love no. you already. <laughs> no. We'd like to thank Jordan for being yes, an awesome, do. awesome executive producer. The heart and soul of our, our podcast. Got to thank our listeners for yeah, whoever the hell you are. Yeah, please send us some comments. Yeah. You can uh, send them to uh, me. At Liz at HistoryOnTap.com, or you can just comment right in the uh, podcast download thingies that you have in SoundCloud and iTunes, um, or find us on social media and just send us messages because we want to get to your comments. And you can you can send me stuff too. Please, we welcome it. We welcome all all aspects of your comments and concerns. Um, genius. Yes. Any last words for the listeners? No, because we're supposed to. I thought I trained you. You're going to say... This is that schizophrenic opinion you have of no, me. No, I thought that I, you, you were going to say... You know what? Say goodnight, genius. I got a haircut today and you didn't even notice. You're looking a lot like Aja Argento. Oh, God. <laughs> you're an asshole. Um, you're a bigger one. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Well, you're supposed to say say good night. Oh, good, say sorry, Jesus sorry, sorry. Jesus Christ! He wants to he wants he wants to have this new ending to this yeah. damn show. Like and George Burns. Okay, you ready? You ready? 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 Yeah, ready. Say good night, genius. Good night, genius. We'll catch everyone next time. Thanks. Can I, can I do the close? Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this <laughs> podcast from the Old Town Alehouse. We have been treated to the fine work of Liz Garibay, Bruce Elliott, and the inane comments of the man who used to be Andy Shaw. This was such fun. Tune in next time and listen in your spaceship. Yay!